0: Well, good morning, and it's good uh, to be with you. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, and this morning I'm going to read the whole of this chapter, and then we'll look at it together. So let's, let's read God's Word and pay attention to what He has to say to us. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribes of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Nephtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's word. Well, some of you uh, may have heard of a man called Ted Fujita. Uh, Most of you probably haven't heard of him. But he was a Japanese-American meteorologist who created what is called the Fujita scale. Now, more of you may know what the Fujita scale is. It is a scale that measures the intensity of tornadoes. And the intensity is categorized from F0 to F5. F0 being uh, the, 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 the smallest tornado and F5 being the biggest. And the F obviously stands for Fujita, named after the man who invented the scale. And an F5 tornado is estimated to have a maximum wind speed between 261 and 318 miles per hour. And the Fujita scale has a description of all of the different uh, effects of these winds. And an F5 tornado is described like this, and I quote from the Fujita scale. Cars are mangled and thrown hundreds, possibly thousands of yards away. Frame homes, brick homes and small businesses are swept away. Trees are debarked. Corn stalks are flattened or ripped out of the ground. Skyscrapers sustain major structural damage. Grass is ripped out of the ground. And wood or any small solid material become dangerous projectiles so if you are standing in the way of an F5 tornado you will not be able to stand it you will just get swept away now perhaps some of you feel this morning uh, like your life is in the midst of some kind of tornado and you are wondering how can I possibly stand well, Revelation 7 will help you this morning. But the Bible also describes God's wrath as a, a wind or a storm. And the Bible tells us here in Revelation 7 also how we will stand in the midst of God's wrath. And who stands in the midst of that is the theme of Revelation 7. And it is a most encouraging picture. For the people of God. Revelation, in fact, is a book that is written to a people who were suffering. The revelation is given to seven churches in Asia. And in Revelation, numbers are important, and the number seven represents a completion. And so this letter, this, this revelation, is given to all of God's people, including God's people today. And the early church to whom this book was written was undergoing intense persecution from the Roman authorities. And John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, was exiled on the island of Patmos. And he wants to encourage God's people to stand in this tornado of trouble that the church were going through. And the way that John encourages God's people is to give his people A vision that he himself received on the island of Patmos. And the visions that John receives are visions that show the history of humanity from the perspective of heaven. The word revelation means an, an unveiling, it's a bit like a curtain being lifted on a stage so that you can see what is going on behind the scenes. And what we see behind the scenes of history is that our God is in control of history and is bringing history to a conclusion where he is victorious with his people. So Revelation does not give us a chronological history of the world, but is a series of visions that show us history from the perspective of heaven. And in fact, the structure of Revelation is such that in the middle of the book here, there are three cycles of seven divine judgments, each depicting God's justice coming upon humanity from three different perspectives. And Revelation chapter 7 picks up in the middle of the first of these three cycles of seven um, judgments. It comes after chapters 5 and 6, and in chapter 5, Uh, We're not going to read that today, but in that chapter, the scroll of history is given to the Lamb, who represents Jesus. And Jesus opens the scroll of history, and God's wrath is poured out upon mankind over the history of the world. There are four horsemen who bring suffering upon the earth, and then we see Christian martyrs crying out, to God to bring justice for their deaths and then at the end of chapter six we see God's final wrath poured out at the end of history the horsemen bring a kind of restrained wrath that all of us see in our world which draws people's attention to their need of salvation but the final wrath comes at the end of time when Jesus Christ returns And at the end of chapter 6, I'm going to just want you to uh, read uh, these verses. People are trying to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. And notice the last verse of, or the last two verses of chapter 6. It says this. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand in the face of the wrath of God? Who can stand in that tornado? And the question, who can stand God's wrath, is the most important question you can ever ask. Now you may have lots of questions you may be asking this morning. Some of them may very well be important. But none is as important as this. How can I stand when the wind of God's judgment falls? And the answer is found in chapter 7 of Revelation. Those who stand are those who are sealed by God and washed by the blood of the Lamb. And this chapter here presents us as God's people with two encouragements that helps us to stand in the midst of the storms that come our way. Whether that be the horsemen, if you like, the F0s to F4s, and ultimately how will we stand in the F5 tornado of the wrath of God in the end. And the encouragements are twofold. First of all, we're going to see we stand because of the assurance of his seal. The assurance of his seal. And secondly, we'll see that we can stand because of the anticipation of his salvation. The assurance of his seal, the anticipation of his salvation. So first of all, in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 7, we see the assurance of his seal. So verse 1, look at that verse, begins with, After this I saw... Now in Revelation, when you read uh, the the book, we're seeing various visions from God. And when John says, after this I saw, we are seeing another of his visions. And this vision, as I've said, is linked to chapter 6 because the seventh seal is not yet open. That comes in chapter 8. And what John sees in verse 1 is four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Now the four corners of the earth here represent the the whole of creation. It's a bit like we might say the four points of the compass. And we see in verse 2 that these winds are destructive winds. And so linked to chapter 6, we can say that these winds are God's wrath. The tornado, if you like. And here that judgment is held back by these angels. Why is it being held back? Well, verse 2 tells us. An angel comes, in verse 2, from the rising of the sun. Now, the rising of the sun is in the east, and the east in the Bible usually refers to a place that's away from God. Uh, So, for example, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were sent away, they went east of Eden. And people kept, in fact, going further east until Jesus came and the wise men then came from the east. East represents being away from God. And so it's where, away from God, his judgment is being poured out. And from there, this angel comes. And the angel has something in his hand or her hand or whatever the angel is. Notice what it is. The seal of the living God. The seal of the living God. Now a seal is a mark of ownership. In the days when slavery was practiced, uh, the slave was sealed with a permanent mark or a tattoo that showed that they were owned by a specific master. The seal showed who their master was. And if the slave ran away and was caught, the seal would enable them to prove who they belonged to. And the owner could then claim back this runaway slave. Now, the Bible often teaches us that every human is a slave to a master of some kind. You're either a a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. And the wonderful truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is a wonderful master who loves us and cares for us as a father. And as we'll see later, as a shepherd. And the word servants in verse 3 in the Greek actually can be translated as slave. And so the seal of the living God marks God's people as his own people. And notice in verse 2 and 3 that this angel with the seal is calling out to the other angels to hold back the winds. He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now the harming here may refer to all of the wrath of God going on in chapter 6, or it may refer to the very final judgment at the end. It doesn't really matter. The point is that when God pours his wrath out, his people are sealed So that when the wind comes, they can stand. Remember, this is a vision. Uh, Christians don't literally have a, a tattoo on their foreheads. That's not the point. The point is that whilst God's people will suffer in this world, they will not suffer the final judgment of God because they have been sealed by him to protect them from his wrath. And that's really important for you and I as God's people to remember. You are sealed, Christian, by God himself. You are his child. He has marked you. He has chosen you. He wants to have you as part of his family of faith. So we will go through suffering in this life, just like everybody else, but nothing and nobody can take away your place as God's slave. You are permanently sealed by him. Isn't that good news? And what it's, what, what it's wonderful to realize that it, your salvation is it's not down to you being good enough, isn't it? That's a wonderful realization. It's not down to your goodness and greatness. It's down to God sealing you himself. You don't have to be good enough. You can have assurance of your salvation knowing that it is God who seals you. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Uh, The hymn, In Christ Alone, sums up very well the same theme. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. No matter what the storm is that comes your way, you are sealed by our God and you will therefore stand. Now this assurance of his seal enabling us to stand continues in verses 4 to 8. We read there that John hears a number. He hears the number of those who are sealed. 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. I mentioned earlier that numbers are important in Revelation. They, They mean something. They symbolize something. So rather than being taken literally, this number has a symbolic meaning. And so the question we must ask ourselves is, what does it mean? Who are these 144,000? Well, elsewhere in the Bible, the number 12 represents the complete people of God. There are 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And when Jesus in the New Testament reconstitutes a new people of God, he calls 12 apostles. And when you multiply 12 and 12, you get 144, the Old Testament and New Testament people of God. And in Revelation, uh, the number 1,000 is a a large number, represents either a long time or, in this case, a large number of people. What you get is the complete large number of the people of God over history. But why then does this vision show Israelites and tribes of Israel? Is, is this just a, a group of Jews? Well, well no. The, the reason is because we're seeing here a fulfilment of the promise to Abraham that he would have a, a great nation that would bless all nations. This can't literally be ethnic Israel. The The tribal list given here isn't found anywhere in the Old Testament. Joseph was never a tribe. Dan is missing. And plus, when Jerusalem fell in AD 70, there was no records from which you could distinguish who was part of which tribe anyway. What we see here is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Judah is probably first because that's the tribe from which Jesus comes. But really there is... Uh, there is a complete fulfilment here of what God said he would do to Abraham. But more important than the numbers as such is, is the fact that God knows the number of them. It's interesting, uh, John hears the number and in a moment he sees an innumerable people. So it's not John that can count them, but God who counts them. God knows the number of his people. God has them on his register. He knows who are his and all who are his will be there in the final roll call. And this does read a bit like an army roll call. If you read the Old Testament uh, and when God's Uh, people were called together to battle they were called by their tribes and so what we have here is a list of the people of God on a roll call and when the roll is called everyone who's supposed to be there will be there God knows every number he knows everyone and everyone who he calls will be on that list and they'll be there because they're sealed by him Uh, Psalm 87 and verse 6 a psalm which we have just sung Uh, says the Lord will write in the register of the peoples this one was born in Zion he knows who are his he has them on his list he seals them with his seal and nothing and nobody can take them away from that register and that helps us to stand does it not when we go through difficulties and trials and suffering this helps us to be encouraged when we think about the final wrath that's to come It's not about whether we are good enough. It is about whether we have been sealed by him. That's an encouragement, isn't it? Well, as well as enabling us to stand in the final judgment, knowing we are his helps us to stand today. He doesn't leave you alone. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, we read that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So God is with us, helping us every single day. We can stand firm with the assurance of his seal. But as encouraging as that may be, in verses 9 to 7 we see something else I would say is just as, if not more, encouraging. Because we can be enabled to stand with the assurance of his seal, but secondly, in verses 9 to 17, with the anticipation of his salvation. In verse 4, John hears the number, but in verse 9, he looks and he sees them. And what he sees is fascinating. Look at at verse 9 with me. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. God knows the number of his people, but John can't count them. The group that John sees is the same as the 144,000. And there is a link here to the Israelites in that Abraham was promised a nation that would be as numerous as... The stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Here is that number. And notice that they are from every nation, people and language. The people of God are a multi-ethnic group from the ends of the earth, fulfilling the great commission given to the disciples. But most important of all, notice what they're doing before the throne. They are standing, standing standing. Chapter 6, verse 16, unbelievers are hiding because they can't stand. In chapter 7, those who are sealed are standing before his throne. Now I mentioned the 144,000 were like an army roll call. Well here we see a picture of a victorious army celebrating their leader after a battle. They're wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches in their hands. White robes were the attire of a victor. And palm branches recognise a king like Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem the week before he was crucified. So what John sees is the sealed people of God, innumerable, standing victoriously before the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, what we see here is our future. The day when we will stand in a vast multitude that we cannot count before the throne of our amazing God, celebrating his glorious victory. And wonderfully, we get a glimpse of what that will be like. Because in verses 10 to 17, we see what we'll be doing there. Yes, we'll be standing, but also we see more. So in verses 10 to 12, we see that we'll be praising God there. The people of God there are crying out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will praise God for his great salvation and we will acknowledge that it's all because of him and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. Now we get a taste now of what that will be like when we sing together as God's people. It's wonderful to sing with you this morning. I also love it when we get when we gather with hundreds of God's people in in conferences and things like that and sing with a great number of God's people and raise our voices together. But just imagine singing with an innumerable multitude praising God for His salvation. In verse eleven, we're joined also with angels and others in creation. Uh, when I've gone to a conference and, and sung with hundreds of people, uh, there haven't been angels or any. Anyone else in creation uh, singing with me? But in this day, we'll be joined by everybody. And everything, almost. Basically, we have a version here of the hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. And there'll be complete unity here, displayed in our praise of God. We'll, We'll hear God's praise in all languages, from all peoples, and even from the angels. It's going to be awesome. But in verses 13 and 14, we get a little break from the party just to give John some assurance of who it is that can anticipate this amazing time. The elders and the living creatures were seen in chapter 4 and 5. They represent angels and creation serving God. And one of these angels, or one of these elders rather, asks a question of John. Not because they don't know what the answer is but because they want us to know what the answer is. So look at verse 13. It says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The ones in the white robes are those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. That means those who have accepted that Jesus Christ has died in our place for our sins. He has died for our sins. We don't face God's wrath, not because of our own merit, but because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice in our place on the cross for our sins. And if we have accepted that sacrifice and sought his forgiveness, then we come out of the great tribulation cleansed and able to stand before the throne. Now, one question is, what is the great tribulation that's being talked of here? Well, tribulation is talked of a lot in the Bible as a time of trouble. And some people believe that this refers to a a great time of trouble near the end of time. But at the same time, there's always been Christians who are going through great tribulation throughout history. In the time of the Romans, they went through a great tribulation, many martyrs. In the time of the Reformation, those who lived in the Soviet Union, and even today in places like North Korea and Afghanistan, Christians there are going through great tribulation, aren't they? And for these brothers and sisters undergoing persecution, they can read Revelation and anticipate this wonderful reality, that although it may feel like they are losing, and that the authorities that are persecuting them look like they're winning, it's the Lamb who wins and his people with him, sealed by himself, who are victorious. And many of us also go through tribulations of various kinds in this life, some of which could be described as great. Brothers and sisters, God will bring you through all our tribulations. He will bring us to heaven because we have been cleansed by his blood and we will participate in this wonderful reality. The suffering we undergo now... Can heighten the anticipation of this which is to come. We do suffer, but we of all people have hope because of the victory of the Lamb. So we've seen when we are there, we will praise God, but verse 15 gives us another glimpse of what we'll be doing. So, as well as praising God, we will be resting in God's presence resting in God's presence it's funny I'm standing here opposite Alistair Brownlee whose quote on the board there is I don't believe in having a day of rest which is very interesting because here we will be resting in God's presence forever in a perpetual day of rest but rest doesn't mean doing nothing that's boring heaven is not boring And in verse 15 to 17, we see what we will be doing as we rest there. And one writer, Richard Brooks, uh, gives three descriptions that we see uh, from these verses, what we'll be doing. First of all, we will offer unwearied service. Unwearied service. Look at the beginning of verse 15. They are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple. Now, serving God may not sound exciting, but actually, it is what we're made for. And serving day and night means we'll be living as we're made to live, but not tiring. Because normally we serve in the daytime, don't we? Some of you may do night shifts. But we don't do both at the same time because we get tired. But what makes serving so hard now is that it can be exhausting. Even serving God, as joyful as it may be, can be exhausting. And as we get older, we, we may tire and age impacts us and all those kinds of things. But in heaven, we will live as we are made to live without getting tired or weary at all. Unwearied service. Secondly... We will have unbounded security. Unbounded security. Notice how we'll be sheltered by the one on the throne with his presence. He shelters us with his presence. So we are protected from all harm. The harm of hunger and thirst. The harm of heat bearing down on us. In other words, there'll be nothing to harm us. No sickness, no broken relationships, no antagonism from outside or even from within us. We will be safe forever with no worries. We will be a little bit like little children who know their parents are there and run around without a care in the world. That's the best way of describing it in an experience that we may remember or may not remember. But we will be unbounded in in us in, in security, sheltered by his presence. And finally, we will live in unblemished satisfaction. Look again at verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What we see here is a common biblical picture of a shepherd leading his sheep to pastures that are provided and provide all that's needed. It's like the 23rd Psalm in that regard. Green pastures, quiet waters that refresh the soul. And we have this satisfaction because of the lamb. It's interesting that the lamb is also the shepherd. Do you notice that? The lamb is also the shepherd. At John chapter 10, Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And here we see the fulfillment of that completely as he leads us in unblemished satisfaction. But what I want you to notice here is also how, although we serve him in unwearied service and unbounded security, he is serving us as well. He's providing the living water. He's leading us there. He's wiping the tears from our eyes. And so there is a a perfect unity A a loving relationship between us and God that will last forever. A little bit like a perfect marriage, which if you carry on reading in Revelation, you get to that wedding at the end. Now remember, Revelation is written to a suffering people, but this suffering people can know that their tears will be wiped away, there will be no more sadness, and they will be with the Lamb Forever. Reading this, has it, has it whetted your appetite for heaven? I hope so. But as we conclude, I have another question I want to ask you. Will you be there? Will you be there? Will you stand the wind of God's judgment? Because you can stand and be here, not in your own strength, not because of your own good works or your own intellect, you can stand when you recognise you need Jesus Christ to take the judgement for you which you deserve, which he has done on the cross. For on the cross Jesus did bear the full wrath of God for us, so we can participate in the glorious victory that's to come. It's the first time I've seen, I think, all any of you today. I've never met any of you before. It might be the last time I see you, I don't know. But it will be the last time I see you this side of glory. Because if you're his child, I will see you in that great multitude. It might take me forever to find you. But we will be together for all eternity. Praising and serving our King forever and ever. I hope these words have encouraged you to keep standing for Jesus until we do stand with him forever and ever.